Hi, you're listening to the IDA Sustainable Trade Podcast. In this series, we dive into the innovative work we do with our partners to make value chain sustainable and business models inclusive. My name is Imre Ruwares, and to kick off the new year, today we'll take a look back at 2019. What are some of the highlights of our work from across the globe and in different industries? And of course, where are we going in 2020? I've invited four of my colleagues to talk about their work. Daniela Marioso is the country director of IDH Brazil, and she will tell you about the sustainable landscape strategy in Mato Grosso. With Cabacoli, director of inclusive business development, I talk about his work to support African SMEs in becoming commercially viable businesses. Sonia Cordera, senior manager of fresh ingredients, explains more about the latest developments in living wage. And finally, Sibbe Kroll, senior program manager apparel. With him, I talk about his work in the apparel industry and realizing cleaner production practices. But we'll start in Brazil and how a sustainable land use plan is created in collaboration with governments, companies and farmers under a so-called PCI compact. Produce, conserve, include compact. Thanks, uh, Daniela, for uh, joining me. So the first question I have for you is, can you briefly explain to me what you've been working on in 2019? What was the highlight for you? Yes, sure. So IDH in Brazil and our partners, we are working for several years in Mato Grosso State, implementing our, our landscape strategy there. And as we always say, Mato Grosso State is very strategic for us because it's a huge state producing a large amount of grains, specifically soy, cotton and corn, and also a large amount of beef. Specifically last year, we uh, worked to build what we call the PCI Compact in Sorriso. It's a huge producer of grains and uh, animal protein. Uh, I think uh, most likely the, the biggest producer of grains around the world as a municipality. So at about 5 million tons of grains every year being produced there. And together with our partners that are the representatives of the, the farmers like Cat Sorriso and RTRS, that's uh, the round table responsible soy, and the representatives of the lands uh, less people and the settlements also and the companies like Cofico and Carrefour and Nutribras and others that are local companies. We built an agenda that's called the, the PCI Compact with the specific targets that are being measured for five years for producing, conserving and, and including. It was an important process because we could put all the interest partners and players together. It was a multi-stakeholder conversation and it's the first pillar to build VSA, our verified sourcing area tool to connect the buyers and the final consumers to the production site. So we implemented the first and I think most difficult for the moment pillar of a VSA that's having the consensus on how the communities and producers and companies that mm -hmm. are doing their business in a specific lands will use that lands in a sustainable way for the, the several years ahead. So for us to achieve this in Sorriso is very much important. 
how is this approach, how is it transforming the market? Yeah, so this is a very effective tool to transforming the marketing because first uh, there is a public commitment with a very specific targets that are measured every year. So uh, the indicators and the targets are transparent for everyone that want to check how this development is going. And secondly, because of the scales that are in the region, because it's a huge uh, production region, so we can bring uh, sustainable soil production to the European markets, for instance, in a huge scale coming from Sorriso. And also because we had very important companies like Cofico, that's the Chinese company, and Carrefour, and also local companies uh, very much committed to become a VSA pilot. So the markets, uh, the retailers uh, themselves are connected to this development. And so, so this is very uh, unique for Mato Grosso and for other regions in the world that have such a, a large commitment from the, the market. So yeah, it's really bringing together and the producers and uh, off-takers uh, together with government really making everyone work together exactly and what was the moment when you realized like when you really felt like yeah this is working this is really going somewhere yeah so this was uh, more or less in april last year when we achieved a consensus from all the representatives from the, the companies the local communities, the landless people and the producers and civil societies and uh, state and local governments. So we as IDH were supporting the process of convening and helping those different players to envision what would be so he's in five or ten years. And so the moment that was very special for us is then when we achieved consensus on this vision and we made it a public document, where, like a MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding of all the parties signing it uh, with the public commitments and showing where is Sohizo going to in the next years. And I can say also that other very special moment related to Sohizo is that we also approved its investment there. So IDH is co-funding a huge program together with the CATI Sohizo. CAT is the, the Friends of the Earth Club, that they say, in Sorriso. So it's uh, basically a uh, producer's uh, organization that's using very, very good uh, agricultural practices in the field. So we were able also to approve huge co-funding projects to support them, to support the whole municipality to achieve the, the PCI targets uh, in the coming years. Yeah, so it's it's on paper now. There's there's a plan, and there have actually been investments. And what is then? Yeah, what's happening for 2020? What's next on the agenda? Yeah, what I think it's uh, very interesting is to to see that because RTRS, uh, the Roundtable Responsible Soil, is also part of this construction, and they uh, organized a field trip in February in Sorriso. So everyone around the world that's interesting to understand better how responsible soil is being produced uh, is invited. And the whole partners of the PCI compact in Sorriso are also part of this field trip. 
So this is basically to connect the European markets like FIFAC and others that are coming to Sorriso and to, to check in person how the de developments on, on soy and corn and also on animal protein like uh, pork production is uh, connected to the sustainability agenda of, of the city because of uh, the work that we have been done. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks so much, Daniela. Okay, great. Next, I talk to Keba. He's been working, as he will tell you, on a lot of things. But specifically, we'll talk about a very exciting partnership with Dalberg and Unilever that is aiming to professionalize African SMEs and smallholder farmer businesses. Well, thank you, Keba. I'm super happy that you're in the Netherlands now because now we can actually have a face-to-face -face talk about your work. So what have you been doing last year? I've been doing a lot, <laughs> I should say. But obviously, one of the most interesting activities and work that I've done in 2019 is basically the GSA or the GSA initiative. And that's grown sustainably in Africa. It's part of the IDH value chain development work that, that we're doing in Africa. And this specifically directed towards supporting either retailers, international brands such as Unilever to increase their purchase in Africa, sourcing from um, smallholder farmers, sourcing from SMEs, the agribusinesses. And of course, uh, Unilever of this world, they have sales value in Africa, $2 billion of dollars annually. And most of what they processing and selling in Africa is imported um, outside the African continent. So what they're trying at the moment is to increase the level of purchase within the African continent and specifically working with smallholder farmers and working with the SMEs to increase business in Africa, within Africa, but also to support the various countries and regions to develop the agriculture sector. So we um, have this partnership with Dahlberg and Unilever in an effort to increase um, Unilever's supply base in Africa, focusing on developing SMEs and smallholder farmers who then are included into the Unilever's global supply chain. It's a very exciting moment. Why? Why is it exciting? Because the challenge for, for African businesses, we have three areas that have been a big, big, big problem for any business. But in, in our case, it's of course, this agriculture business. And that is the, the finance part, developing the technical know-how and the market. We have last year, we launched the fund of 100 million euros. And that's specifically for agribusinesses, smaller farmers, SMEs, and aggregators, service providers, input suppliers, and of course, the local financial institutions like the banks and so on, to be able to use that money 
as a catalyst for access to affordable finance. So this is the de-risking, this is the collateral, this is the uh, efforts of uh, IDA taking uh, a genial lending position, working with a local bank or international bank in reducing the cost that are associated with mm. lending money to SMEs and smaller farmers in the agriculture space. For us, that finance mechanism that we've been able to set up, among others, with Unilever as part of the, the, the fund, it's amazing to see that a company like Unilever will get into this space and say, we are interested to work uh, with IDH, not only from a grant perspective that IDH has been traditionally uh, known for, but now we're putting into this financial space where it's all about investment. You find a company, and an SME, a pharma cooperative that you really believe in and you really see has some potential and basically develop them to become something in line with a business partner. So not only going and, and buying and leaving, but actually staying. So the finance component, we sort of have that um, pretty much under, under control because of this fund. The second component is that within our value chain development work with IDH, we have a very solid team internally, um, but also our partners that we work with who have the capability to supporting this identified SMEs to grow, looking at commercialization and to further professionalize their business operations. And how do you become an efficient business? How do you become a sustainable business with either a farmer or an SME or a processor, an aggregator? You move from being totally dependent on grant or family members pitching in to help you with working capital to be actually coming to have at least 70 to 80% of your working capital all the investment either from your own money or from the commercial banks that, that are available. The third one in this is the market, where we know that the problem for most of uh, the, the SMEs and the farmers is to actually find a premium market. So when I say premium market, it's a market where uh, you can get a much higher price for your produce or your product or whatever you're producing. What, you, what we see um, in, in Africa, in many of these countries, is that the business that is taking place happens in informal settings, whereby the pricing is pretty much under your production cost. You're making a loss. And therefore, for the, uh, the next season, you will have to go out and ask for additional money or expect a grant from someone and, and yeah, so on. It's unsustainable economically. Exactly. So if we can find a market where this business is either local market or regionally or now the exciting other thing is the intra-Africa trade where African countries can trade with each other without any tariffs and other things. The other one is because IDH is well positioned, having over 400 companies from retail trading companies to international brands like, like, like Unilever, 
we are specifically positioned to identify potential buyers within our networks and investors whom we can attract to um, working with African SMEs and farmers that we're working with, but also the African farmers and SMEs can be directed and supported to find markets in Europe through our network. So these two ways makes it very, very exciting and, and, and put us in a very exciting moment and Unilever with the purchasing power that they have and in, in this partnership, having committed $25 million as a purchasing power for the first phase of our work. We believe this is the, um, the way forward. It's a long way to go, but I think it's a very good start. So would you say, I mean, on one hand, uh, we're helping developing SMEs who before didn't really have access to finance in the way that they needed. Um, and on the other hand, linking them with a market that if they have their production in place, that they can actually uh, also sell it for a good price. Is this a way that you see we can really transform the way we do business? Absolutely. That's the way forward. In the past eight years that I've been working in this agri-business space for IDH development businesses across Africa, South America, and in Asia. We've been doing stuff in a very modest level. We have tried so many times to basically scale businesses, but it's like taking three steps and then two steps back, or even worse in some cases. So we've been trying um, to, to prototype and, and, and accelerate together with the companies. We've had great success, but in some cases, um, we see a lot of failure. But with this model, since you have an off-taker, the off-taker have agreed to buy whatever is produced, not in an exclusive agreement, but they actually commit to buying as much as they need. And, and this SME have now been able to get the knowledge and to master their business. They're able to produce and sell to Unilever, but also to sell to other competitors of, of Unilever and, and, and so on. And the other exciting thing that we also see is our work to basically establish the local market and the regional markets. Because you would think that there are, the purchasing power is not well established in those in those countries, but actually you 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 may be surprised because people eat, and Africa is a net importer of food in the billions of dollars. So if we can use part of that money and start buying and doing business internally, regionally or continental level. The benefit will stay in the continent. There is no way, in my opinion, I don't. I think many people will agree with me, that we would say we can be uh, non-importers of anything. We will produce everything ourselves and sell everything internally and regionally. That's not going to be possible. What we are trying to do in this case is to bring African businesses to the international level to play with others, European, American, Asian companies, South American companies, to be that level where everybody is playing at. So you trade, 
you buy, you sell, they come to you, you go to them. So looking at the competitive advantage, but to say to replace import to 100%, I don't think that that is feasible. No, and maybe also not necessary. Maybe the power is in being able to trade certain commodities, like this competitive uh, advantage. Exactly. Yeah. So if you look at it from a European angle, which I know best, you say, what is Italy good at producing? Of course, they have Ferraris. (laughs) (laughs) But Italy is also good at producing tomato paste. What is Spain good at? They're good at many things, among others, Barcelona. (laughs) (laughs) Good export products. And they are very good at producing beautiful oranges yeah. uh, in Valencia, for instance. So if we look at Italy and Spain, they can trade with each other in a different way. Italy would need oranges always, orange juice and so on and so forth. Spain will need tomato paste. So how do we manage to create the same environment in Africa yeah. where we know the African comparative advantage of, say, which country? Rwanda. Rwandan tea is excellent tea. And which other country? Kenya. Kenya, the neighboring in the East African community, Kenya is good at producing flowers, among other things. But, but they are absolutely a powerhouse when it comes to flowers. So Rwanda is also producing flowers, but they are not at the level of, of Kenya. So can these two countries trade with each other. And both have a benefit from that. Exactly. Yeah. So this is kind of the whole overall strategy of what we're working towards, right? And when in the past moment, what was a moment you thought, now we're really going there? I think in September, the first week of September 2019 in Accra, Ghana. Agra had AGRF, the African Green Revolution uh, Forum, we organized the deal room. The deal room basically means to showcase programs and projects that individual organizations are running together uh, with uh, parties that actually focusing on investment in the agriculture space. So pure investment, pure business development, specifically related to smallholders and SMEs. With the GSA partnership, uh, Grown Sustainably in Africa, with Unilever and Dalra, we had the pleasure to welcome um, Unilever's African Vice President for Purchasing and uh, Plantation, among other of his responsibilities, Christian um, Byron. Christian stood at that, the plenary sessions with thousands of people we had USAID announced that they have this program with IDH of 250 million euros for the second loss guarantee for the fund, the IDH fund. And then we had Christian stand up to the podium and said the GSA partnership with IDH and Dalbar is the way forward for Unilever and that Unilever has committed $25 million uh, as purchasing power for the first phase of this project. And then I, I looked around and I realized how immense and how powerful that was, developing this uh, partnership with uh, Unilever and, and Dalbra. 
Among others, we had Wensleydale, a South African company that has been selected by Unilever to supply them with a few processed products for their African market. But actually, that was for me, that was the moment I realized this was big. So with, with Unilever saying, hey, we're actually going to do it, it was like one of the biggest global brands saying, this is a good idea. We want to be part of that. Absolutely. That was the moment I realized this is something magnificent. It's a tre- tremendous challenge, of course, but we're ready for it. So what's coming up uh, next year? Uh, next year, <laughs> we're actually in, in the new year. okay what's coming up in the next 11 and a half months there you go (laughs) we are now going into implementation actually today as we speak my colleagues are uh, in south africa in johannesburg together with unilever and wensleydale's team basically kicking off this project so that's one uh Mm -hmm. one thing um, and we have a number of others coming up, one, two actually in Nigeria and one in Ghana. And we have a few in Rwanda, Ethiopia and Kenya. And so I think um, Tanzania as well. And what, what does that mean by the end of this year? Where, where will this project be? If you look at the Wednesday deal project, we have a number, a number of uh, targets that Unilever have set forward. Because um, this is a three-part agreement, is IDH, is Unilever, is Wednesday deal. Wednesday deal must produce a certain number of volumes that they need for this year. And our challenge from IDH perspective is basically to support Wednesday deal to realize these targets and to also build their own capability and capacity to be able to produce beyond this project to basically become more commercially driven. Okay, that sounds super exciting, Kemba. Thank you so much uh, for being here today and uh, doing this. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Great. Sonia tells me more about IDH work on living wage and more specifically about a self-assessment tool for companies called the Salary Matrix. And the commitment by Dutch retail to close the living wage gap in their banana supply chains. Hi Sonia, thanks for being here. Can you briefly explain to me the work that you've been doing over the past year? Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, We have been working on the topic of living wage since many years with our partners, uh, especially of the Sustainable Initiative of Fruit and Vegetables. But uh, recently, last year, 2019, was a crucial year because, first of all, we published the salary matrix in January. That is a self-assessment tool where companies can uh, uh, really calculate the gaps between the the wages they currently are paying their workers um, against the regional benchmark for the cost of living, so what is called the living wage. And when we published the tool that we developed together with Rainforest Alliance, a lot of interest came uh, out of that, both from the companies and from the standards. Thanks to that, we were able to discuss with the Dutch retailers a commitment on, uh, on the bananas, especially. And uh, along the year, we went into all the phases of, of course, 
clarifying the approach, defining objectives, and uh, but we were happy to launch in October this year publicly this commitment that is to reduce the gaps between current paid wages and the living wage of 75% uh, by all uh, retailers that have signed this agreement, that is the majority of the Dutch market, uh, by 2025. That sounds amazing. And how is this sort of a blueprint for like the future? Why is this so special? Yeah, we think it's really special because around living wage uh, in the past has been very difficult to work with companies because... First of all, there weren't tools available to enable them to really get into the concrete work of understanding where they stand when they're talking about their own producers or farms. The other thing that was missing was really a commitment from the buyer perspective, so from retailers, in this case, supermarkets, that really put their face, if you want, uh, out and say, yes, we want to go in this direction and we will try our best to go there. Of course, we will need the support of our supply chain because this is not something that only supermarkets can, can do. They will need the entire chain to help them to, to go in that direction. But that's all an important commitment that uh, hasn't been uh, there before. And that's also why we are very happy about that. It was publicly announced because really triggered a lot of interest from other retailers and uh, other countries. And we are receiving this interest and working together. And hopefully uh, we really aim in 2020 also to enlarge this group that becomes more an international commitment and not only commitment by the Dutch retailers. And in last year, what was the moment when you thought now we're really hitting that sweet spot? I think I've been working on uh, developing the salary matrix with Rainforest Alliance and uh, some private companies uh, already since a couple of years before. But when we published finally the tool online, I think that was a critical moment. There was also some hesitation. Shall we publish it? It's not yet ready. We could work to improve it more and more. But I think that was the moment when we put it out. Immediately we received invitation to go to international conferences to present it. Companies started downloading the tool. And so also standards, not only Rainforest Alliance, but also other standards like Amphori, SEDEX or Fair Trade International recognize the value of that tool and uh, are now willing to collaborate with us to refine it and to make it the way uh, gaps can be calculated when we are talking about wages in international supply chain. It's incredible to see that finally this topic that was really uh, a couple of years ago still perceived as a little bit of a radical topic or um, uh, companies were looking at it with uh, fearing a little bit or finding it a little bit scary. Now it become operational. And when things become operational, people start to understand really what they can do and what, what is the next steps. Because starting uh, to have an idea what are the gaps enable, first of all, to bring uh, awareness in the entire sector yeah. in the supply chain of this current status. Second, enable also a communication between buyer and producer. And you have numbers to talk about, and it's much easier than just feelings or uh, yeah. qu- having broader questions. And I think third is the first step. If you identify gaps, then is the first step, and then you can at least design a plan to close the gaps, hopefully. But without that picture, is is even more complicated to, to set up goals. 
So what's coming up for the for the coming year? Now the tool is out. The commitment was there. You mentioned the your hope is for international. Um, yes. Buy-in. So the Dutch retail group will uh, will work on a baseline this year. So that will be the focus: gathering all the data from their supply chain and have a good uh, baseline report, so that we can also identify the priorities where to work on reducing gaps. But of course, I said also to to make this group more international. So hopefully we will have an international coalition uh, on on this as well. And uh, at the same time, I really uh, look forward to the process of refinement of the matrix. So hopefully we will have the new version out this year. And uh, all that process is now organized around an initiative that we call the Roadmap on Living Wages. And it's really, um, there are a lot of uh, international retailers around that table as well, producers. So we really hope that this work will proceed smooth and then we can have really a uniform way to uh, calculate gaps uh, on living wage. Because at the end, we think that the private sector has really the, the, the power to change reality on this topic. So giving them and uh, helping them to have the right tools and then to focus on implementing also living wage in their supply chain is our role and uh, so that's our goal for 2020 thank you very much thank you very much (laughs) and last I talked to Seba on how he's working with different public and private partners in the textiles industry making significant savings on energy and water Hi, Sibbe. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) And then let's right away dive into the first uh, question I have for you. So what have you been working on in the past year? Sure. So I think for the IDH apparel program, we have a couple different things that we're working on. Uh, We have different projects in the social space, in the occupational health and safety space, but also in the environmental space of the sector. And I think actually in 2019, we had quite an exciting year to be working on environmental topics in the in the apparel sector. What uh, a lot of people probably already know is that the textile sector uses a lot of energy, water, and in that sense can also be quite a polluting sector if we look at the way that it's performing. And as IDH, together with a lot of our partners, we've been able to make quite a change in the way that the sector is performing. And in that sense, also really make a difference now in the way that we can create a pathway for cleaner production and already see improvements happening this year, which are only likely to scale over the coming few years. So a practical thing that we've been doing actually over the past few years and also really scaled up in 2019 is working with a group of brands and like Gap and Levi's, Marks and Spencer's and Walmart as well as uh, as others that are currently just stepping up in the program. So just at the end of the year, we also saw H&M coming into the program, which was quite exciting. And with them, we've been engaging their textile mills, which is what's called the second tier part of the sector. So these are the facilities that are supplying to the factories that actually make the finished goods that these brands can sell. And these second tier textile mills, these are the ones that do most of the wet processes, which is the dyeing and the laundering of of textiles and the cloth. And that's where most of the chemicals, the water and the energy is consumed in the sector. And it's also by far where the sector has its biggest footprint. And what we've been doing is the creation of a program within the Race to the Top platform 
where we found a business case for becoming a cleaner and more responsible producer. So by finding smart ways of reducing energy consumption, reducing water consumption, also improving chemical management and uh, decreasing the utilization of chemicals, we've actually been able to not just make these facilities more sustainable, but also more profitable, where we look to now get to a point where we can have more sustainable facilities actually outcompete the more traditionally performing one. So it's not only the saving of money, but it's also the saving of resources, like the both of them together. Exactly. Yeah. So that's really the sweet spot that we're looking for, because then it starts to really become something that is just good business and also makes a lot of sense for people yeah. to invest in, which then also helps us tip really the, the scales into the favor for more sustainable production. And this is something that we've seen across the board. Uh, we've seen it uh, certainly in Vietnam, where we've been running this type of program for a few years now. We've also seen it in Pakistan, where we started more recently. And it's led us to also now work increasingly through a new partnership that we have helped develop, which is the Apparel Impact Institute, which is a platform that IDH could launch together with partners like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition and also the Target Corporation. And the idea behind the Apparel Impact Institute is that it is a platform that can help move good working programs and projects like the ones that I described to their next level of maturity, making them something that really goes from a piloting project into something that becomes just a common practice or even a license to operate within the industry. We saw more and more partners come on board within this Apparel Impact Institute and throwing their weight behind what we see now is an increasing uptake for these environmental improvement programs and more responsible ways of producing, uh, in this case, apparel. And I think to a large extent, that's also because 2019 has been quite a pivotal year for projects such as the United Nations Fashion Charter or the World Resources Institute science-based target setting, which means that a lot of the big players in the industry are now committing to quite ambitious targets when it comes to reducing their carbon footprint. And of course, when you set these types of targets, then of course, the logical next step is to figure out actually, you know, how do we get started on this and how do we make this happen? So this really has the potential to, on a big scale, change how the market is working. Absolutely. With the rate that the sector is actually still growing, we really have to rethink the way that we produce and the way that we utilize our resources, certainly within countries that already face a lot of water stress. And also considering just the amount of carbon emissions that could be going into the air if the business keeps going as usual. So the fact that we now have not just interventions that have proven to work and increasingly more and more innovations that also can be integrated in the supply chain to improve the carbon footprint that comes out of it. But also we have the platforms, the financial partners, uh, such as HSBC, which is an important partner of the Apparel Impact Institute, to actually find ways to scale up the good work that's possible and make it more of a mainstream way of doing business. So you mentioned that there were a lot of savings in the programs. Uh, what Do you have any numbers on that? Or what do I have to think of when we're talking about savings in water or savings in uh, electricity? In Vietnam, uh, in the last year, we had a few factories going through one of the iterations of the program that, uh, that we've been running there. And this group of factories together saved in one year over half a million cubic meters of, uh, of water. But when we break it down, we actually did a little bit of research. It's over 207 Olympic swimming pools full of water that is now saved 
year on year by just one of the batches of the facilities that went through the program. So yeah, when you look at the types of tweaks that we can do, and really, again, I should say, these are projects that aren't necessarily very difficult. I mean, they take some time to work through and they require good partners to make them happen. But in the end, they have a very quick return on investment, but they also are really able in saving significant amounts of water. And we should also keep remembering ourselves that this is happening in areas in the world where water scarcity is increasingly a big problem and will only continue to do so over the coming years. And if you would look at 2019, what was for you personally a moment that you really felt this is going to work? That's a good question. I think what I personally excited me a lot in 2019 is the moment that we actually started working on a project together with the Vietnam government on how to improve the guidelines that they have for industry to improve the chemical management uh, within the facilities in that country. Because a lot of times we see that we work with, of course, international partners and some of the bigger players, which can really help move mountains. But if we're not careful, we leave the smaller facilities or domestically producing facilities behind, which ultimately then also still creates a lot of risk in terms of the burden that they could have on the environment. And by working together with sector associations and with local governments, we can also really help raise the bar across the whole sector and also create a level playing field and ensure that also these smaller type of facilities have the same type of resources at their disposal as the, the larger ones tend to have already. So the fact that the, the Vietnam government, the Ministry of Natural Resources and the Environment, together with a number of sector associations and with us as IDH wanted to embark on this journey where we could work with the platform called ZDHC, the Zero Discharge of Hazardous Chemicals platform, to make that something that was mainstreamed and now is actually being broadcast as guidelines throughout the Vietnamese industry. I thought that was very exciting to see and that over time it can really have a long-term sustained impact in the country. And if you're looking at the coming year, what is, uh, what's on the agenda? I think we have a couple of exciting things ahead of us. So like I mentioned, with good partners like the Apparel Impact Institute, we're keen to see the work that we have been doing only get further pushed along in the industry and grow. But uh, we see increasingly new uh, topics also emerging that help underpin this new idea behind producing in an environmentally sustainable way. One of the main things that we've been talking about for quite a while is uh, circularity, which has at times the risk of being a buzzword, but we also see increasingly that there's real proof points that it can work and that it can be the model of production for a future that's working. And yeah, in, a, in extension to the work that we're doing with the, some of the partners that I mentioned, we are now already identifying a couple of areas where we can help create a circular business model and actually can make that work on the ground, particularly in plastics for specific polymers and uh, also within fabric waste. And all of that waste we're seeing increasingly really does uh, have the potential for a second or maybe an infinite amount of new lives uh, after its uh, first utilization. That sounds uh, like a lot to do, but also a lot of potential. Absolutely, yeah. Really cool. Well, that was it for me. Thanks so much, Sibbe. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> To listen to our other podcasts, follow our channel IDH Podcast via iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Or you can sign up to our IDH newsletter via www.idhtrade.org.
to always receive the latest news and podcasts in your inbox. You'll hear back from us next month.